This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It's been two years since President Trump sent shockwaves through refugee resettlement programs with what was dubbed the travel ban or the Muslim ban. It barred refugees from entering the U.S. for 120 days. The U.S. Supreme Court just ruled in June that the third version of Trump's executive order is constitutional, and parts of the ban have gone into effect. Democrats in Congress, meanwhile, are trying to block it. We wanted to see how refugee resettlement in Colorado has been affected throughout this process. Kit Tainter is Colorado's refugee coordinator, and nice to see you again, Kit. Thank you for having me. Let's start with how refugee resettlement was affected by that first executive order in 2017. Was there an immediate impact in Colorado? Yeah, there was an immediate impact and a lasting impact. So when we throw it back all the way to 2017, that's a lot of different changes have happened since then in the refugee resettlement program. So I have to like dust off my memory to remember exactly (laughs) what was in that first order. But there was a number of really key things that played out immediately and then played out over time. So one of the things that uh, the executive order did was reduce the total number of refugees that were allowed to arrive in federal fiscal year 2017. So it used to be that the number of refugees allowed into the United States was based on a variety of factors. And one of the most important ones was global need. So if you can remember what was happening over the summer of 2016, we were hearing a lot about refugee exodus from countries like Syria or, you know, countries in the Horn of Africa, people seeking safety and sanctuary by taking really treacherous journeys across the Mediterranean. And so the United States and other resettlement countries like Canada had really needed to react to that migration and, uh, you know, in a sort of planned process. And one of those ways the United States reacted was by increasing the number of refugees that we were going to allow in in federal fiscal 2017. What the executive order did was reduce that number from the 110,000 that the Obama administration had set to 50,000. And that was at a time when the global need was at an all-time high. And so there would have been an immediate effect on the number of refugees coming into places like Colorado. Exactly. Um, You know, we had planned to resettle close to 2,500 refugees that year, and that number was effectively cut in half, um, if not more, um, by that singular um, executive order. Despite the global need. Despite the global need. So that was the immediate impact. And you say in the iterations to follow, there have been subsequent impacts. How have those manifested in Colorado? Sure. So um, you mentioned one of the things the executive order did was put a pause on the program. Um, that 120-day pause had real and immediate impacts for Colorado families um, because potentially there were uh, family members living overseas or at that last step of the process to go through in order to be admitted into the United States as a refugee, and they saw their travel canceled. Um, so you had Colorado families here who were waiting for their aunts or their kids or their uncles or their cousins to arrive, and then all of a sudden that arrival at DIA wasn't happening. Um, the pause also put a, a cog in the system or it stalled the system, for lack of a better word. Um, the Re- Refugee Resettlement Program isn't like a light switch. You can't turn it off and then turn it back on. Hmm. And so even though the pause was temporary, um, it's had long-lasting effects where we've seen uh, the numbers of refugees who are able to make it through the processes um, have been really reduced. Um, the other thing that's really happened for us subsequently is while the executive order set the cap, uh, the national total, the 
number of refugees to come into the United States and therefore in Colorado, um, we saw those numbers reduced. So nationally, it was at 50,000 and then the executive order in federal fiscal year 2018, it was at 40,000. And then this year, we're down to 35,000. So we've continued to see a decline in the total number of refugees. Okay. And I'll ask about the specifics for Colorado in Mm -hmm. just a moment. I want to say that in upholding the latest version of the travel ban, the U.S. Supreme Court found that the president was well within his powers here and that as much as the president's own remarks might have drawn attention to Muslims in particular, the ban actually focused on countries whose vetting process was, uh, in the administration's mind, substandard. So reviews of IDs, visas. Uh, Besides the executive order, you're saying that other policies from this administration have affected refugees in Colorado. I think that's what I hear you saying. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the first order, the first executive order, if you can remember, was very, very broad and subsequently got narrowed through challenges in the court. Um, What happened for the refugee resettlement program is many of those changes happened outside the executive order through policies and processes, Mm. not necessarily as part of the order that was working its way through the court. So Sharon McCreary is the volunteer coordinator with the Refugee ESL program at Emily Griffith Technical College. ESL, of course, English is a second language. And she says the number of refugees enrolled in that program have dramatically declined since Trump took office. Two years ago, our average refugee student enrollment was about 300 students. And now we're at about 175 So we're definitely feeling a change. Let me ask, how many fewer refugees are coming into Colorado? What are the numbers now? Yeah, so in federal fiscal year 2016, we saw close to 2,000 refugees arrive. Um, and so that's that peak. State. Yeah, and that's that peak that Sharon's talking about. Last year, we resettled less than 800. And those are individuals. Many of them are children um, or youth that are still in school. And so when you think about families, um, that number is dramatically lower, you know, less than 400 families. So from a height of 2,000 in one year to 800, pretty dramatic difference. Um, what does that mean in terms of uh, where they're coming from? Does this change what countries refugees are, are hailing from when they come to Colorado? Yeah, refugees are were already the most vetted class of immigrants to arrive in the United States. But as you mentioned, there have been a number of additional security measures put into place for refugees from certain countries. The so-called extreme vetting. Correct. And so what we've seen is a change in the makeup or the composition of the refugee population in Colorado. So two or three years ago, we were seeing high numbers of refugees um, from places like Iraq or Somalia. Okay. Um, now the primary countries of origin for Colorado's refugee population are countries like the Democratic Republic of the Congo or the Ukraine. And that's because there's been extreme vetting on those other nations. Fewer of those refugees are coming through. Correct. And yet the need is great, I imagine, for those coming from, say, the Congo. Yeah, I mean, the, need, the need's definitely there. I mean, we're at an all-time high for the, uh, for the refugee population in general globally. But I think that it is telling that there are countries like Syria that we know that are producing large numbers of refugees, and we're not seeing them being able to be resettled into safety and sanctuary in the United States, and particularly in Colorado. Of course, the administration will say this is about keeping Americans safe and that there are nations who might send folks with ill intent Uh, Sharon McCreary from that ESL program says two years ago when there was a lot of hateful rhetoric around refugees, some Coloradans opened their arms to volunteer. I went from typically having 
I don't know, two or three volunteer applications hit my desk in a week to having dozens so that two years ago at this time, instead of having 20 volunteer applications, uh, I had over 150 and they just kept coming. But where have all the volunteers gone? Bit of a twist there. So there was some immediate interest, and then it seems to have waned. She says the waiting list of refugees needing English tutors keeps growing because she doesn't have enough help. Are other refugee resettlement organizations struggling with volunteers now, too? Well, I think if there's a silver lining to all the changes that have happened over the last couple of years, it's been an increase in uh, investment from our Colorado communities in the refugee program, like um, Sharon talked about, an increase in investment from volunteer time. But is that fleeting? Yeah, I think what's happened um, for Coloradans like myself and like others is that a lot of needs of our society have really come into focus over the past couple of years. And so if you talk to any nonprofits or any social service agencies, I think that they'll um, recognize that uptick that Sharon's talking about in terms of volunteers. Um, I think what we found for volunteers is oftentimes the intent is there, but potentially the the time that they're able to commit or the, the weekends that they're able to com- commit maybe isn't as robust as they would like. Um, so I think one of the really great things that our partner organizations have done over the past couple of years is recognize volunteer limitations uh, at the same time as uh, noticing needs at, at, at uh, nonprofits, specifically nonprofit serving refugees. And so they've begun a website to sort of streamline uh, the distance between interest and contribution by developing a website um, that links, uh, you know, Colorado community members with refugee serving agencies. Okay, we'll post that to our website later today. Kit, thanks very much. Thank you. Kit Tainter, Colorado's Refugee Resettlement Coordinator. Our next guest is on a mission to visit every National Park Service site in the U.S., more than 400 of them. At the same time, he's trying to make the outdoors more welcoming to LGBTQ people. We have occasionally checked in with Micah Meyer throughout this quest, which actually began as a way to honor his father. Meyer is in Denver for the Outdoor Retailer Convention, which starts today, in fact. And hello again, Micah. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here in balmy Denver compared to the rest of the U.S. Yes, that's right. (laughs) No sub-zero temperatures uh, quite like they've seen in the Midwest. I understand you've just arrived, though, from Guam. Yeah. Uh, Your timing to visit the national park there in some ways could not have been worse. You booked the trip 10 months ago with no way of knowing there would be a government shutdown. How did it go in Guam it was so stressful. I, I boarded the plane not knowing if I was going to be able to visit the park or not, you know, and this was a really expensive ticket and months uh-huh. of planning. And and thank God I got there and the Guam Tourism Bureau told me we've worked it all out. Uh, we can't have a ranger give you a tour, but we've got a private tour guide who's going to and you can access this land and you can make this happen. So I was able to count it as site. 389. 389 on your list. This is the War in the Pacific National Historic mm-hmm. Park. Yeah. Uh, You have 29 sites still to visit. Tell me more about why you started this journey about your dad. Yeah, well, he passed away at age 58. And so he never got to retire and have the time to do those things that we all sort of assume we'll get to. And I noticed a lot of my peers seemed to think they were all guaranteed to live to 80. So I wanted to do something crazy at age 30, an age where we're supposed to have everything figured out and do it as a way to hopefully inspire people to follow their crazy dreams now rather than later in case they don't live long enough to pursue them as well. 
It's interesting. I've sometimes gotten advice from my own father to front load your life because mm. you never know what your health will be later Amen. On. Yep. Mm-hmm. I'm curious if your father um, knew you were gay, if you were out to him before he died. He didn't know. I, I didn't really come to accept it myself until three years after he passed. And uh-huh. so uh, part of this journey, actually, I like to connect with his former pastoral interns and sort of ask them, you know, did he ever talk about this? What do you think his opinion would be? And I haven't gotten the most clear answer like I would have hoped, but I've been able to glean a little bit of information. He was a member of the clergy. I mean, I'm Yeah, he was a Lutheran minister. You plan to finish uh, this National Park site tour on April 29th at 11 a.m., exactly three years to the day and time you started. Yeah, um, that'll be the 14th anniversary of his passing. And the idea was to take a day that's been really horrible for over a decade and try to repurpose it into something triumphant. So I have invited anyone who wants to join me to be at the Washington Monument at 11 a.m., which is where I started And as a community, we'll all put our hands on the monument and then walk together to the Lincoln Memorial, my final site. And that's because this is really a we moment. It's not an I moment. There's no way I'd be here today in studio with you was it not for thousands of supporters around the world. I mentioned earlier that you're in Denver for the Outdoor Retailers Convention. When we spoke, I think about a year ago, you'd run into some obstacles trying to get sponsorships for your National Parks mission Talk just a little bit about that disappointment and how much you think that has to do with the fact that you're openly gay. I think it's a huge part. Um, When I started this journey in the history of the outdoors industry, there had never been a Pride Month ad. Um, That has since changed in the past three years. But I even had one sponsor I was working with who let me go suddenly and they put in writing that it was because I was doing too much LGBT outreach. So... It's really been a journey, both this physical one to the parks and also this process of thinking I had to hide who I was for this journey to be successful and sort of learning that actually it's because of sharing who I was that now this journey is where it is today and will complete. Gosh, and since then, you were featured in an outdoor recreational ad campaign, Mm -hmm. I think in association with REI and an outreach program called Opt Outside. Yes. What's the message behind this? Um, Well, the message behind Opt Outside, as you're probably familiar with, is the whole Black Friday idea of don't go shopping, go and enjoy nature. So it's it's a campaign they've been doing for years. One, I would argue, is maybe one of the most well-known in the United States, just encouraging people to get outdoors. And so I was able to work with them this year to help encourage people to do that. And for me, it was so meaningful that they involved an openly gay person because it was the first time in the history of the industry that anyone has done that. Why is it important that there be a specific focus on the LGBTQ community when it comes to the outdoors? Presumably you see some obstacles there or maybe some historical reasons why that connection might not have been made. Totally. I mean, I grew up in Nebraska and didn't meet an openly gay adult until I was 19 and left Nebraska. And so I think representation really matters. Seeing people like us, seeing someone who's outdoorsy and gay... I hadn't seen that before this journey started. And now I'm able to be that for kids around the country and world and people who write me and say, you're the first person I've seen like me. Like me. What has the representation been before that? What, you know, there wasn't really anything. I mean, I did I did really comprehensive research before starting this journey, trying to find someone who I could approach their sponsors to work with me. And I found nothing. So what do you think is next for you once you complete 
<laughs> this, this year's long journey to see all the national park sites. Well, I'm going to take a nice long hot shower and sleep, uh, <laughs> sleep in a room with air conditioning after living in a van for three years. Um, no, I'm really excited. I'm going to keep doing stuff with REI. I'm going to be helping them expand and share their Outside with Pride collection, uh, appearing at Prides with them, doing speaking events for them. So I'm really excited about that. Going to continue doing some more outdoors projects. But my next big project, which I actually haven't spoken about publicly till now, okay. Um, I'm going to continue sort of this creative activism and breaking stereotypes about what it means to be gay in America. And beginning this fall, I will be setting out on my next epic road trip, which is following my home state, Nebraska Cornhuskers, to every single college football game this coming season as a way to show Americans that gay people are just like them. And we love college football, too. And it's a stereotype that we don't, but... I'm a lifelong Huskers fan, so here we go. Okay, so trying to break more stereotypes here. What do you imagine your message will be at outdoor retailers? And do you hope to change some minds while you're here? Yeah, so I try to keep everything really positive and invite brands to come to this opportunity. Uh, We're seeing so much movement in pro sports right now, where pretty much every team is having an LGBT night. Hmm. And really just coming to brands, I made these little postcards that I describe the benefits of marketing to LGBT people, just talking about sort of the pink dollar that the rest of corporate America has been chasing, that action sports with Gus Kenworthy have been chasing, that Olympic sports with Adam Rippon has been chasing, and sort of inviting them to join the rest of corporate America and include the pink dollar in their marketing plans. pink dollar. Yeah. Adam, the figure skater, Gus, the skier. Uh, Thank you for being with us, and we appreciate your sharing uh, your journey with us. What's the next location, by the way? Uh, so the remaining 29 sites, 28 of them are all within a two-hour radius of D.C. Okay. There was a new one added in November that's in Kentucky, so I'm flying there in March. But uh, otherwise, April 29th, 2019, come join me at the Washington Monument at 11 a.m. Barring a shutdown. Of yes, sort. let's hope the government stays <laughs> open, please. Micah, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Micah Meyer joining us to talk about LGBTQ inclusion in the outdoors. She started paying attention to some really serious stuff, lead contamination in water, at just nine years old. Gitanjali Rao of Lone Tree has since been honored as one of America's top young scientists. We first introduced you to her in 2017. I want to go to MIT to study um, genetics and epidemiology since they allow me to look at different approaches to solve real-world problems out there today. But she's certainly not waiting for college to do that. Today, at age 13, Rao is working with Denver Water to refine a test she invented that detects lead in water. CPR's Michael Elizabeth Sackis caught up with her at home and in the lab. Gitanjali Rao opens her closet door and shows off her game collection. So I'm slightly overly obsessed with board games, as you can probably see here. A dozen or so are stacked roughly in her closet. She says her favorite is Clue because she wins. And her favorite character, Professor Plum. He looks like somebody who would love science. And so I like him. Because Rao definitely loves science. There's a pennant flag from MIT hanging on her bedroom wall. Her dream is to go there to study genetics. There's a desk not far from her bed, which she calls her lab. It's complete with a 3D printer, test tubes. And here's my inventor's notebook, which I love. I'm a graduated cylinder. I've got a little box of lead. (laughs) 
And there's the lead detection device she designed and named Tethys after the Greek goddess of clean water. It's a 3D-printed box about the size of a deck of cards. So how does it work? A carbon nanotube sensor detects the lead in the water and forms resistance. Okay, what she's saying is carbon atoms link together in kind of a beehive shape and then become a tube. Lead sticks to the carbon ions, which creates resistance. So I have a processor that measures the resistance and sends the data to a mobile phone once you connect over Bluetooth, and it gives you the status of the lead in your water. Rao got the idea after reading about the same technology used to detect hazardous gas in the air. And my immediate reaction was, uh, why not use carbon nanotube sensors to detect the lead in water, since that's a problem which I'd heard about three years ago during the Flint water crisis. As a 12-year-old, she was named America's top young scientist by Discovery Education, and she landed an interview on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon. God, when I was 12, I don't know what it was. It was lip syncing in my mirror in my my bedroom. (laughs) Rao says the fame helped her make friends at school when her family first moved to Colorado. Kids already knew who she was. Oh, you're that lead girl, right? I'm like, yeah, I'm that lead girl. And they're like, do you want to be friends? I'm like, yeah, sure, let's do this. Now she's working to create a prototype of Tethys that could eventually be on the market. And she's getting help from scientists in the water industry. Yeah, right? We can rule that out. Yeah. Rao stands at a whiteboard with Dr. Selene Hernandez-Ruiz, a lab manager at Denver Water, Colorado's largest water utility. She's brainstorming with Rao on what they'll be working on that day. Um, Right now I'm looking at interference with other chemicals um, in water apart from lead. This partnership started when Hernandez-Ruiz invited Rao to come work in the lab after Rao took a tour of Denver Water. I hooked on and I was like, (laughs) hey, I I want space in your lab. Um, can I come here, like, every day? Hernandez Ruiz says she's thrilled to be helping a young woman of color foster a passion for science. It's so hopeful to see the current and next generation, like Yutanjali, going for it so strong, right? <laughs> with all the right tools, with really the desire to excel and test those boundaries that sometimes we're told we're not supposed to come close to. Rao hopes to get a prototype of her device out into the world in the next two years. In the meantime, she's filling up her inventor's notebook with new ideas. I'm Michael Elizabeth Sackis, CPR News. And Forbes recently named Rao to its 30 under 30 list in the science category. She is the youngest winner. We're just learning that the oldest known chunk of Earth was actually brought here from the moon nearly 50 years ago during the Apollo 14 mission. Puzzled by that? Well, CU astronomer Doug Duncan is going to explain. He joins us regularly to talk about space science. Hi again, Doug. Hello, Ryan. Explain how a four-billion-year-old well, Earth rock got to the moon in the first place. Well, believe it or not, rocks are being tossed around the solar system a lot more than most people would realize. Remember the beautiful eclipse of the moon a couple of Sundays ago? Yeah. We actually saw a little flash on the moon of a meteorite hitting right during that eclipse. And, and when a meteorite hits, it blasts rocks, if it's big enough, blasts them every which way. And we actually have more than 300 pieces of the moon that came here not from the astronauts, but came here due to meteorites. So it certainly can go the other way. Ah. And uh, this rock is about 4 billion years old. So back in those days, um, the moon was much closer to the Earth. Um, 
it's moving away slowly, a couple of inches a year. We should talk about that sometime because it's fascinating. But so the moon was closer, and we know that meteorites can blast rocks into space. The, and, and so uh, the idea that Earth rocks would be on the moon, that part is certainly true. Um, we're still debating and trying to be sure about whether this particular rock is one of the Earth rocks. So it's just fascinating to me that the Earth and the Moon were so much closer together those many, many years ago, three times closer. So the Moon might have looked uh, awfully big in the sky back then. But you have the Apollo missions. Uh, awesome, yes. Yeah, you, you have the Apollo missions bringing back, gosh, I think more than 800 pounds of, of Moon rocks. Uh, maybe we could just establish why they were doing that first before we talk about the particular rock that only recently has been found to actually be some of Earth. Sure. We love to have the moon rocks because everybody's curious about how the Earth and the moon formed. I mean, aren't you? Any curious person looks around and I think says, where did the Earth come from? Where did the moon come from? And, and that's tied up together. And, and so you want to try and find rocks as close to the origin as you can. So old rocks are very valuable. Where was this particular rock found that may indeed contain Earth? Well, it was found in an area that seems to be uh, material that was thrown across the surface of the moon by an impact. I mean, as I think most people know, there's lots and lots of craters on the moon. Yeah. And uh, one of the most prominent, especially at full moon, I invite anybody to get a pair of binoculars in their hands. At the next full moon, look at the moon, and you'll see a really bright white crater with streaks or rays coming out from it. And those are rays of material that were thrown out from the impact. And one of the interesting things about this particular moon rock is it seems to be in an area uh, where a lot of material had been thrown out. Although, like I said, there are many places on the moon uh, that have been mixed up and thrown about by these impacts of meteorites. So how are scientists, again, this is the recent part of the discovery, how are they confident that this rock brought back from the moon actually contains Earth? Well, it still is a matter of debate, okay? Some people are confident and other scientists are confident they're wrong. <laughs> but here's the thinking of the people. And, and of course, that's the way science works. Um, the, the composition is what we study. And fortunately, because we've got those 800 pounds of moon rocks from different places on the moon, although we certainly haven't visited you know, all of the moon, you can make comparisons of what the little part of this rock is made of and compare it to the Earth. And that's what the scientists are arguing, is they think the compositional study indicates that it came from the Earth. That it's something we have. But that's still controversial. Here. Okay. Could it be from another planet? I mean, I don't know, Mars or Venus or something? Well, um, interestingly enough, we have roughly a dozen meteorites from Mars. We know enough about the composition of Mars that these unusual meteorites came all the way to the Earth from Mars. Wow. So like I said before, stuff getting slung through the solar system um, is quite possible. Uh, obviously, the closer your target, the more the chances are that, that something is going to uh, travel. 
So uh, it's, it's a study of the composition that gives you the clue to where a meteorite is, is from. Okay, and so we know that it's not from Mars because we have parts of Mars with us. How is it that we're just yeah, figuring this out now, though, that this, that this uh, rock may contain Earth? I mean, the Apollo astronauts brought, brought the rock back in 71. Right. You know, it's kind of like your homework. It's 50 years later. Haven't you turned it in? <laughs> um, the thing is that uh, there's so much to study in um, the moon rocks. And we get new ideas of things to look for every year. It's kind of like um, geology has been a study of the Earth for more than two centuries. And yet there are definitely still geologists going out and finding new stuff. You know, they go to new places on the Earth and they come up with new ideas about, uh, you know, that the continents are are slowly drifting apart and and where does new land come from? And, and so I think it's invaluable that there's 800 pounds of stuff and when scientists develop new techniques or mm. even new ideas, you know, in retrospect, what an obvious idea. If rocks can come from the moon or even Mars to the Earth, well, duh, they could come from the Earth <laughs> to the moon. Uh, but I think it's true of a lot of ideas. It, once somebody says it, you go, well, duh, why didn't we all know that? So I, I think there'll be more looking and more discussion and more debate if any of the rocks that the astronauts brought back are truly moon rocks. Yeah, and that's you know, how this, that's how this gift keeps on giving. In other words, it's now decades since the rock was brought back, and you can still find out oh. new things from this. I just want to say, Doug, that, that China oh. has a lander on the moon right now, and I think part of its goal is to bring home more rock, right? Oh, it is. And that'll be really fascinating because we've never gotten rock from the far side of the moon. And when the Earth and moon were much closer together in the early days, there was so much tidal effect from the Earth pulling on the moon that the near side formed quite differently than the far side. Uh, by the way, I wanted to mention, you know, if you have a great idea of something new about the moon rocks, you can check them out. You said in NASA, hey, here's my idea. Would you send me some moon rocks? There's a scientist <laughs> down, down the way from me, Steve Moises, who's a CU geologist. And he's really interested in what the Earth was like when life began, which is about 4 billion years ago. So that's why 4 billion-year-old rocks are so valuable. And yes, indeed, scientists are checking them out and studying them. There's a couple of them here on campus right now. There at CU Boulder. I want to turn just briefly before we go to New Horizons. When we spoke just last, we were anticipating that Boulder-led spacecraft to encounter MU-69 in the Kuiper Belt on New Year's Day. And uh, just last week, NASA released a very detailed picture. You predicted this object, MU-69, would be shaped like a bowling pin. And you were right. There's a kind of ring of yeah, light. Not only the... did we... Not only did we predict it, Ryan, but we made a little video, which anybody can see uh, online. If you Google Fisk Planetarium and you click on the drop-down about, it says Fisk Productions. And we indeed predicted it would be kind of like a peanut or a bowling pin, uh, two different spheres and where, where they uh, meet is kind of a, a wider ring. Probably that's where they've kind of ground the rock together when they stuck. You know, I don't know if people have tried this, but if you take a rock and you smash it or you, you rub it together, the little pieces are sometimes a different color, the little pieces inside. And probably we're seeing two giant rocks sticking together. Huh. The, the picture, now, I, just, the I picture, have to say, yeah. 
Oh, go ahead. <laughs> That's okay. We're not face-to-face this time, which perhaps explains our, our lack of timing here. Uh, yeah, we're, we're, we're the, trying tech, a new technology. The, the, I'm not as remote as the moon. <laughs> it feels like it. The picture shows a giant crater um, in MU69 four miles across. I mean, uh, maybe that could be an impact crater, a collapse pit. Just in the about, about 30 seconds we have left, what, what, what does that mean? You know, it's probably a sinkhole or something, but the most exciting thing I could hardly restrain myself from saying is we want to know how the planets formed, how the Earth formed. And one of the ideas is that planetesimals, rocks that are maybe a few miles across, uh, meet and stick together and get bigger and bigger, and eventually you make a planet. But if, if two giant things come together, two things can happen. They could stick or they could break each other into pieces, and, and then you wouldn't make a planet. And here we see, right in front of our eyes, two that are stuck together. So probably this is a snapshot of the, four, the, the way planets formed four and a half billion years ago, the way the Earth formed, was planetesimals like MU69 coming together and building up more and more. Oh, then when it gets bigger, gravity comes in. But the sticky, it, it's cool. And they're sticking. (laughs) And my favorite new word is planetesimals. Uh, Doug, thanks for being with us from Boulder. Always a pleasure, Ryan. Doug Duncan teaches astronomy at CU Boulder, and he joins us regularly to talk about space science. In Loud and Clear, we get listeners' feedback. Last week, we highlighted some of the challenges children face who are adopted from Korea. The way I like to describe it is that basically I grew up feeling like a Martian who had arrived from outer space in a spaceship. Glenn Morey is behind the project. He lives in Denver and was himself adopted from Korea. Well, listener Gil Asakawa of Arvada emailed to say he appreciated the segment, but the one disappointment I had in Glenn's remarks is that he never mentioned anything about adoptive parents who care about their child's cultural roots and are sensitive to their other status in the States. Asakawa alerted us to Heritage Camps for Adoptive Families based in Denver. These are camps where kids can learn about the culture in the countries they came from, the art, history, even the food. Charlotte Redden of Denver, who adopted children from Korea years ago, also reached out to praise these camps. There's hundreds, if not thousands, of people who have attended that over the years. This is a really positive, Korean-centric, if you will, uh, program. Well, keep your comments and story ideas coming. Find all the ways to get in touch at cpr.org slash connect. Architect Daniel Liebeskind made a big splash in Denver with his addition to the Denver Art Museum. It opened in 2006. With its titanium skin and sharp angles, it's become one of the city's most iconic buildings and a big tourist attraction as well. The Hamilton Building, as it's known, has its fans and its detractors. Critics offered mixed reviews when it opened. So how is it holding up 12 years later? we decided to ask the man himself, Daniel Liebeskind. CPR's Andrea Dukakis met up with the architect last week. He was at the museum for a lecture and book signing. Daniel Liebeskind, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. 
We're sitting in a gallery in your building. It's the part that goes over 13th Avenue, stretches over the avenue. And inside, there are lots of angles and um, slanted walls. And I wonder what it feels like when you come back here. Where I love it. It, it, you know, the building doesn't age. You know, it, it look, it could have been made yesterday or tomorrow. It's because it's not about style. It's about creating space and light, which uh, really responds to the needs of, of such a creative museum as the Denver Art Museum. In your new book, Edge of Order, you write, um, buildings need time to settle into a community for people to ease into using them, for the shiny sense of newness to gradually take on the patina of everyday life. Do you see that happening here? Oh, absolutely. As I entered the building, I could see that it was used and used in creative ways. And of course, uh, over time, it becomes part of the community in, in a different way than when it's first kind of presented as a, new, as a completely new place. So, yes. In I feel what that. way does that change over time? I think people, uh, in my book, I say uh, it's like when you buy a new pair of shoes. You know, at the beginning, it's kind of they are new, but as you walk with them, they become part of your foot part of your being. And that's the, the same thing with the museum. It becomes part of the being of the community and part of Denver, part of the world. Are visitors to the museum using the building in ways you hadn't expected? Oh, absolutely. I think it's spectacular. I saw interventions of artists on the walls, just using the building as a palette for creativity. And that's what it's for. It's not really some sort of a box, some sort of prison for art. It opens itself up to the imagination, and it's as creative as these fantastic works that you hear, see as, as we talk here. It sounds like you want it to be a living thing. Totally. I think a museum, the, the artworks are so living, and the sculptures and all the things that, that are here. Why should the building be any different from them? Do you have a favorite spot in the museum? Well, this is one of them. I love this spot with, with the that slanted light coming in, the sort of point going upwards. It's, it's one of my favorites. When the building opened in 2006, some critics said the architecture overwhelmed the art inside. They also said that all the slanted walls made it challenging to display artwork. Did they have a point? No, because the building was, I didn't design it arbitrarily. I worked with the curators, with the director, with everybody who was an expert in what they wanted in the building. One thing for sure they told me, just don't give us a white box. We don't want that. We need place for installations, for creativity, for sculptures, for performance, for people. So that's really what it is. And, and uh, you know, it takes sometimes time, as you said, to sort of accommodate itself to, sometimes people just, don't expect unexpected. Were you bothered at all by the criticism? No. I think we know in the history of architecture, every building which is original, which is not a copy, not a convention, is going to sort of have criticism. Of course, that's part of life. Uh, any new novel that is radical, a, a new piece of music, a, a theatrical place, a, a piece of art. Of course, there's always controversy with something which is genuinely creative. What's an example of a building that a lot of people know that's been criticized? Well, Eiffel Tower. You know, it's a symbol of Paris. It was, it, they wanted to take it down. It was built for an exhibition, uh, the Universal Exhibition in the 19th century. And people said it's so ugly. It's really ruining Paris. And now what is the Eiffel Tower? It's the image of Paris itself. Right. Some visitors say the building is a bit disorienting. It even might make them dizzy. Um, what would you say to them? 
well, art should make you dizzy. You know, if you just take art as if it was just, uh, you know, an old pair of uh, shoes, it, that's not art. Art doesn't make you wonder. It doesn't make you perplexed. It, it, it sometimes disturbs you. And that's really part of the power of what is new and communicated to you. So, look, I, I, I don't think anybody feels dizzy, but uh, maybe there is that element of truly something diff- very, very different and very connected to the art which is shown in this museum. And I think it's spectacular as you look around art of different kinds, materials of different kinds, uh, wild ideas. Uh, that is also the building. The building is not a container to just sort of uh, uh, tamp down the art. It is to make the art even more wondrous by presenting it in a space that is adequate for those amazing artists. If you could go back, would you do anything differently? No, architecture is not an experimental art. You know, if you're in another art field, you could experiment. But there's nothing experimental about architecture because it has to be drawn. It has to be constructed. It has to be technically responsible. Uh, Of course. Of course, there are decisions that are taken by clients and so on, which you cannot reverse. But but in general, architecture is what you want it to be. It's, It's inevitable. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with architect Daniel Liebeskind about the Denver Art Museum's Hamilton Building. He designed it, and it opened in 2006. He's in Denver for a lecture and book signing at the museum. His new book is called Edge of Order. You've said that buildings tell stories, that they say something. What do you think this building is trying to say? I think this building is, has that kind of beauty exu- and exuberance of of Denver, of, of the pioneering spirit of Colorado, of, of this amazing, beautiful place. And it is uh, sort of topographically and imaginatively related both to the structure of the city, but also to the structure of the nature, which is surrounding it, to those amazing crystalline forms that at the, are at the foothills that created the Rocky Mountains themselves. So, yes, it's part of it. I heard when you were flying in, you saw the vista of the Rockies and then the area of streets through Denver, and you wanted to make sort of two lines walking together. That's right. I was totally inspired. Just as I was flying to Denver, and I had a piece of paper actually from a hotel, and I just sketched out kind of intuitive feeling that it's really two lines of you know, going for a walk, the line of nature and the line of the city meeting together in this, in this sort of knot, which is... The, the place for art and the place for people. You won a competition to design this building. Um, I believe you were still based in Berlin then. The Hamilton building was your first project completed in the U.S. In your new book, you say that when you start a project, you work hard to avoid feeling like a foreigner coming in from somewhere else. How did you do that in this case? Well, I spent a lot of time, time in Denver. But, you know, sometimes the stranger knows more about the city than the locals because you discover things that no local would ever bother to be looking for. And you have to really absorb the spirit of the city, the spirit of the place. You have to sort of get in touch with it in emotional ways, in, in visceral ways, which are not just by taking a photograph or just by walking around the side, but you have to put your head into the ground, so to speak. You have to breathe the air. You have to look at the eyes of, of, of the neighbors who are crossing the site. And that creates sort of a world in which you immerse yourself and you become part of that wavelength, which is the wavelength of a unique 
irreplaceable place like this place here in Denver. What struck you about Denver when you spent so much time? Oh, I love Denver. I fell in love with it because, first of all, it's one of the most beautiful places in the world. I mean, I work in cities all around the world, in every continent. And Denver, with its Rockies, with that spirit of openness, with the fact that people are imaginative here. It's not like New York or L.A. or Paris or London or Tokyo. It's, there's a spirit here of, of openness, and I think that's the founding idea of Denver. That, you know, why, why is Denver here in the first place? Because they rerouted the train line to make sure that it passes through this place okay. on its way from the east to west. So, yes, there is that energy, which I feel very strongly here, and it's so beautiful and such a privilege to be here. Did you learn anything from the project? Of course. Of course. You learn about how... How interesting the world really is, how different it is than you would see it just from a distance. But once you put those cowboy boots on that I'm wearing and start walking and meeting people and begin to sort of see the celebratory nature of what an art museum is. And, you know, to build an art museum is not just a regular task. Of course, if it's a white box, it's a regular task. You know, there's nothing new about it. You can put one here, you can put one there or anywhere. But if a museum is to really relate itself, relate itself to a genius loci in a strong way, make a tie, uh, yeah, that's something special. The Denver Art Museum's other building across 13th Avenue was designed by Italian architect Gio Ponti. It opened in 1971. That building's getting a major renovation, including a new two-story welcome center. What are your thoughts about the plans? Well, I love the Gio Ponti building, and I think the plans to renovate it are spectacular. You know, when I, I lived for many years in Italy, in Milan, and out of my window was a Gio Ponti building. And Geoponti is one of the great architects. Actually, as a student of architecture, I came here just to look at Geoponti buildings a long mm. time ago. So I think it's a wonderful thing because this building uh, of the Denver Art Museum and the Geoponti really, are, as I designed it, are kind of united. They are not two separate buildings, but they have a, a intimate, really organic relationship in terms of color, material, uh, sort of materiality of, of how you perceive them and the connection physically between them. Do you think you're an optimist? Well, as I often said, you know, you can be a pessimist in any field, you know, as a businessman, as a general, as a politician, as a poet writing uh, poetry or a composer in a minor key. But as an architect, because you are building foundations for the future, it's a requirement to be, you know, you can't have an architect who's not optimistic. So, yes, it's the art of optimism, absolutely. I can see that. Um, what current project are you working on that you're most excited about? Well, I have so many. I'm such a lucky architect. One of the projects I'm working with is Richard Leakey, the famed anthropologist in Africa, to create a museum of human evolution in Kenya, right at the Rift Valley where we all come from, you know, thousands of years ago. And it's really a spectacular project that will really transform our understanding of who we are and what we all share around the world. Spectacular kind of site of pilgrimage. I just finished a museum uh, in Lithuania, in the capital, in Vilnius, which is a museum of modern art, my first museum of strictly modern art. And that's really a beautiful project that I was proud to do. Uh, I'm working on so many you know, skyscrapers and cities and, and so many other things, whole cities to be transformed in Finland, in Germany, in Middle East, in China, in, in Australia. So, yes. Is it challenging to keep tabs on them all when you're doing so many projects? It is challenging, but I never take work quantitatively. I only take what I am interested in doing. 
you know, I don't believe that just doing a lot of projects is good for your health or for anybody's health. You have to choose what you really love to do, who you really want to work with, and then something can flower beyond your wildest imagination. Daniel Liebeskin, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. He's the architect behind the Denver Art Museum's Hamilton Building, which opened in 2006. His new book is called Edge of Order. Liebeskin spoke with CPR's Andrea Dukakis. That's Colorado Matters for today. Thanks for spending time with us. You can follow us on Twitter at Colorado Matters. I'm at CPR Warner, and we are CPR News on Facebook. This is Colorado Public Radio.